Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Intrinsic Labs podcast, Reignited. I'm Sharat Achievan, the host of the podcast series, which is all about how we can reignite our inner drive in different aspects of our lives. And lucky today to have Roshan Paul here as our guest. He's a real leader and innovator in many areas, um, including the social sector, but also in terms of how we think about our careers. And what we're going to focus on today is how we can really set the right GPS, if you like, on our career destinations and journeys. So we can really have fulfilling careers, careers that have full amount of purpose. And we'll focus especially on young people and how they can think about these issues as they start off early in their careers as well. Roshan, it's a huge pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Shara. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. And I've got to say, you've traveled all across from India to the States. You don't sound that jet lagged. I'm pretty jealous. <laughs> well, hopefully I'm sounding better than I'm feeling. Yeah. And I think it'd be really great for our listeners, uh, Roshan, just to share a bit more of the journey you've been on career-wise and you know, just briefly, what, what's the arc been? And also, I'm kind of curious about what's been guiding you along the way. I actually think I've had perhaps an unusual career in that I've only had two jobs in the first 20 years of my career. And <laughs> that may be unusual in today's world, but I spent the first 10 years working at an organization called Ashoka, which supports social entrepreneurs around the world, working for them first in India, then in the US, and then a bit in Africa as well. And then I've spent the last 10 years working on my own organization that I co-founded called Amani Institute. We work in Nairobi, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and in Bangalore in India. And so while my career has been very global in that I've lived and worked in many different places, apart from the odd internship, you know, or teaching assistantship or something like that, I've really only just had two jobs in 20 years, which I think in today's day and age is relatively unusual. That's amazing. Yeah, because I've also worked just over 20 years. I'm probably slightly older than you, Roshan, but I've done, I think I was talking to my kids about this, about 11 jobs, maybe, maybe nine if you're generous you know, on the other end. <laughs> so clearly like, you fall in love with what you did. And I'm just curious, what, what made you stay that long? Yeah, I think it's falling in love with what I did. And, and right from the beginning, having a, a sense of purpose, you know, as, as we're going to talk about. So for me, it all kicked off in college. So I had no plans to work in social impact. I grew up in India, went to the US for university. And like most foreign students in America, I was looking at jobs and consulting or investment banking or so on when I graduated. But my final year of university was the same year as 9-11, followed by a terrorist attack also in India on the parliament building, followed by really violent riots between Hindus and Muslims in Gujarat in India. And all of this was happening in the year that I was graduating, interviewing with consulting firms and investment banks. It just seemed to me that like the two countries I knew best, India and the US, were both on fire. And, you know, what good would I do working in a consulting firm, helping an oil company streamline its processes or an insurance company get more profitable when, when there seemed to be real needs out there? And so that was when I made the decision to actually turn down some really great potential opportunities in America and return to India and start working in social entrepreneurship. And I think always having that sense of what's the larger purpose behind what I'm doing is one of the things that's helped me stay as long as I have in these organizations. So I want to rewind back to that first offer. You were a strapping undergraduate, about to finish your time in, in the US, right? You studied, I think, your undergrad. Yep. Yeah. Where, yes. So, you know, fees, you know, especially if you convert into Indian, Indian rupees, it's probably pretty astronomical. Yeah. And you're turning down, it sounds like a, at least a, you know, somewhat left, right, and center some pretty lucrative jobs. I mean, did no one kill you? I mean, your parents, did they not say anything to you after all that? How did that play out? 
Yeah, well, I mean, Sharath, you and I know probably quite well Indian parents and the heritage we have then. I think I was really lucky um, in that my parents were themselves kind of entrepreneurs and rule breakers. They always said, you don't have to do any one thing. You don't have to go be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer, the three kind of Indian pathways. You could do anything you want as long as A, you're happy and B, you can take care of yourself financially. And so they were really open in terms of what I wanted to do. But even for them, when I first brought up this idea of turning down a job that would be making more money than my dad at the peak of his career and going back to India to work in an NGO, I think they were a little bit hesitant with that. And of course, everyone else thought I was just absolutely nuts. Not for the first time, as it would turn out. I think it was kind of like my support from my parents, even though they they didn't necessarily understand at the time, but that, that really helped. And what purpose gives you is this ability to sort of stick with your own moral core, even when others around you might feel like you're doing something silly or foolish. So that, I think, helped me a lot. I guess you were about 21, 22 at that point, Joshua. And, you know, I guess purpose, and as we get older, we can think about these things. But I'm just curious at that age, I mean, probably a fairly early age, right, in, in our yeah. in careers, how did that sense of purpose guide you so early on? It was, I think... Just a lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of study in terms of, you know, how to think about this. And I felt pretty early on, I think, that money wouldn't be the driving force for me. And I was actually getting positive feedback on this. In the U.S., when you are a foreign student at a university, you have host parents, right? And so the person who was playing the role of my host father at the time said that, you know, the the kinds of things you're saying at 22, like I only realized this in my 40s. That was the first piece of positive reinforcement. And then the second one came actually when I was interviewing at a world-famous consulting firm and came to the point that I wanted to actually turn turn down, like I was the, the opportunity. And I actually got invited to to meet a partner in that firm. They, they brought me in and the hiring person told me I didn't meet a partner until like the, my second month on the job. Like, it's crazy. They want to talk to you already. And so I went in and I was talking to this partner and he said, you know, why do you want to do this? Why don't you want to come work here? Why do you want to go do this? And when I explained it, he said, you know what? Like I spent the first 10 years of my career as a musician. I was following my passion. And then I came to this firm and I, I, don't regret it for one minute, like that I did that for the first 10 years. So he said, you know, you can like go out and do whatever you want to do. Like we'll always be here if you want to come back. And so it seemed like there were these like positive reinforcements, even from the person who wanted to hire me was saying, if you don't want to be here, go do what you want to do, man. And so those were the kinds of things that like, I think I was getting feedback from some parts of the environment that I was onto something. And I think that helped me uh, a lot. Amazing. And I'm kind of jealous because I went into consulting. I took the offer that I got as well. And so I had the very slush dinner with a partner and I wasn't strong enough to avoid the seduction as it were as well in a metaphorical sense, I stress as well. Yeah. I guess a lot of people, I talk to young people today and, you know, Michaela who's helping us with the podcast has just graduated from the top universities in the UK, King's uh, um, College here. What, what seemed to be in your, your mind, if I heard right, was that since you can always come back, that's what the partner told you as well, mm-hmm. at this very, you know, uh, lush consulting firm. How do young people have that confidence? Because often it can feel like if you're not on that ladder, not on the treadmill, yeah. that path is never available to you. How did you manage to convince yourself that, that was an option in the future? You know, now with the benefit of hindsight, I think something I tell a lot of young people in in that stage in their lives today is like, consider this thought experiment. So let's say you're 22 and you're trying to figure this out. I tell them that you will be working for twice as long, at least, as you've been alive so far. 
right? So think about that. You're gonna, your career is going to be twice as long as you've been alive. And so there's almost no wrong decision you can make, right? So whether you make the decision I made, and maybe that didn't work out for me, and I went you know, b- back into private sector for, for whatever reason, or you take the decision you made and you said, hey, I'm going to go follow the seduction of this great career. Well, you changed your mind and, and you went on to build a tremendous career in social impact. So that 40 years of your career is a long time and, and you have a lot of opportunities to, to come back, you know, and, and you're perhaps, you said 11 jobs, right? You're probably only halfway through your career. So, so you have another 11, you know, to go possibly. So with that, when you think about it like that, I think there's a certain liberation that comes that says that there's no decision you can make now that is irrevocable, even though sometimes you might feel that way because you've just had this whole university education that's that now you really need to make money or your parents are putting, you know, or your family's got pressure on you, or maybe you've got responsibilities, right? Like you've got to take care of your own. You've got to support your parents or other members of your family. So I always say like, you know, do what you need to do at this point, follow your nose, you know, take your responsibility seriously. And life is long and, and it will come around and, and you can make the, you can make different choices at different stages in your life. So I would in, invite people to not put so much pressure on that one moment in their early 20s when they're graduating university and give themselves time with the knowledge that no decision is final. Yeah, really powerful. I love that idea of taking that long perspective, Roshan, because we often are so... I was talking to um, some NCAD MBA, I did my MBA at NCAD and mm-hmm. um, talking to, to many of the incoming classes last Sunday, actually. And, you know, I showed them a picture of a path, right? And you're kind of standing from a mountain looking down. And what was really interesting is when you look down like that, what feels immediate is the, the hundred meters in front of you, right? That feels like, God, everything mm-hmm. is based on hundred meters. And they've put, they're spending on like 90,000 euros to, to get this you know, fancy MBA now. And you know, you can, it definitely makes sense because there's so much pressure in the short term. But when you look just a little bit further down the picture, that path goes on and on and keeps going as you, kind of as you said that, you know, you're going to be alive twice as long as you, sorry, you're going to be working twice as long as your life. So it's a very powerful perspective. How can we, I mean, practically though, how do we defuse some of those tensions? Is that, mm-hmm. how do you reduce that pressure to think so short term and think it's all or nothing now? Any, any tips for, for, for listeners? Even if you know that it's not all or nothing now, uh, it may feel that way. I would say then do, do what makes sense right now with the knowledge that it's not going to tie you into something for forever, you know? And so if there's, for whatever reason, pressure to make the decision right now that, you know, will make you the most money, let's say, as one example, do it. Like, go for it. And, you know, you that in itself will teach you a lot of things about what's important to you. Are you willing to do work that you don't like just to make a lot of money? Well, what do you learn about yourself through that? Right. Or maybe you find that you thrive in this kind of environment and and it's not even about the money, but it's actually about the fast paced, you know, high intensity work uh, that you do. Or perhaps you just make a lot of money and spend your weekends giving that money away, you know, to where it can do the most good. Like that's the role for some people as well. And, and that's a wonderful role to to have. So. I think, you know, the options are vast and they're getting more and more vast with with every passing year, except maybe 2020. And I imagine we may come back to that question. So I, I just think the op- options are just going to keep increasing. So again, I would I would say, you know, take the pressure off and, uh, and it doesn't matter what you decide right now, even if that decision may not seem like one that seems right to you deeper down, take it because you learn a lot from, from taking it. I had a great, honestly, um, a great few years in consulting. I was with um, Strategy and now, Boozer Company. I learned a ton. I guess part of the, 
the sell I think that I sold myself on was that I was going to learn very transferable skills. Mm-hmm. Early on, so whatever I wanted to do, I could use those skills more generally. And I'm just curious, I mean, um, you worked for Ashoka, which is I think, a fantastic organization. There's a building transferable skills in a way as well. But what kind of skills are most important or what kind of you know experiences should we be cultivating? I assume you mean like skills to eventually build a career in impact or a purposeful career? Yeah, no, exactly. So I think uh, perhaps those maybe give you more flexibility because I think your, your point about the world is an oyster. How, how do you set yourself up to keep that world so open? Because a lot of people worry that you you do something, I don't know, you go into banking or law or whatever, and then suddenly your options narrow. I think perhaps the most important skill to build or, or even the personality trait to build is to learn how to learn and enjoy learning. The idea that like university isn't the end of your education, it's the beginning of it. You've got to keep reinventing yourself. It took me a while to figure this out and I don't think most people know. You've got to keep learning. You're going to have to keep learning new things and new skills. So if you come at it with that sense, like again, no skill narrows you down, right? Whether you're, you're let's say you're going to banking, you can transfer those skills to other things, but you can also like just learn new things down the road as well without necessarily going back to school, right? You can do it online courses, you can do it at your job, you can do it in any number of different ways. That's probably kind of the meta skill that we we should all develop. Beyond that, I think there are a set of four skill buckets, so to speak, that are typically not taught very well in university, but are incredibly useful for your career. And I would say those are leadership skills, communication skills, management uh, skills, and innovation or creativity or problem-solving skills. So so at Amani Institute, the organization that I co-founded, those are kind of our four buckets of professional skills that we think everybody should have. And under each of those buckets, there's, again, there's a a whole range of like sub skills that we work on helping people to develop. But I would boil it down to those kind of four areas as ones where you can keep building your skills. And and here's the thing is that you're never really an expert in them, like in, in the sense that in each of those skills, you never reach a place where you've learned everything there is to learn. You keep learning, you keep growing, right? I mean, you know, there are probably ways where Obama can improve as a public speaker, right? So I would say like, you're always learning, you're always growing. And and those are areas that the more mastery you get off those, the more likely you are to be able to transfer those to any type of job or career down the road. But Here's the thing, those are all what you might call soft skills, right? Or human skills. So I think that's where I think the truly transferable skills are the ones that allow you to, you know, work with different people in different industries anywhere in the world. I love those four skill um, skill areas. Hard to learn intrinsically as well, Rishin. But mm-hmm. I think this idea of mastery so that you, you keep getting better. And I think that links a lot of what motivation thinking would say that you never, never reach the apex, right? You're constantly going on a slope and you're getting closer and closer, but it's this kind of unattainable Go, which keeps us motivated, which makes a lot of sense. But I know you've had some really ex- exciting experimentation, learning and the money, you know, the, which, you know, an incredible organization. I just handed it over, which again is a huge, you know, a huge tribute to your maturity as a leader. But how do you bring that into higher education? Because I, I did my undergraduate at Cambridge, but mm-hmm. stuff was, it was there actually, but it was often implicit. It wasn't explicit. My first question is, does it need to be explicit? Because my understanding is you, you map those things very systematically and Mm -hmm. trying to develop them but what's your sense of explicit versus you know it just happens i think when a university says it just happens it's a little bit of a a cop-out perhaps that they don't want to change what they're doing i think the higher education conversation or, or the future of higher education is a really interesting one universities were set up as centers of learning you know 
learning for its own sake, right? And there's, of course, a great role on the research side that universities play in society, and that shouldn't change. But at the same time, I think what, what most of the general public want universities to be is career preparation. Give me the skills and the knowledge I need to have a successful career outside of academia. And universities aren't well set up for that. Right? So think about who teaches at a university. It's an academic who has received a certain credential, the PhD, because of their ability to do research. It's not because of their ability to be a good teacher. It's not because of their ability to be a good manager or a good leader. The things that employers actually want out there, right? So your instructors, the people teaching you in university, are not teaching you things that the people who will then employ you actually want, right? And so I think there needs to be some kind of split between the the research function that universities provide to society, which I still think is invaluable, and the career preparation function that most people who go to university today want from it. But I think that's what I would say is needed. And by trying to do both at the same time, universities are being a little disingenuous by saying, we'll take your money and we'll we'll put it to research. But that's not what you're paying them to do. I'd love to dig in a bit of this. I really want to do a service to many young people who are coming out of the university this year in, in many countries who are, are finding it tough, of course, right, given the environment. Mm-hmm. around us. And I, I think it might help them to sort of think of their education frame in, in a helpful way. I completely buy what you said and agree actually in many ways, but you just said earlier on, you know, that partner at, you know, unnamed consulting firm A or whatever, uh, you know, I said, look, it doesn't matter what you, what you do, you can always come back. I studied economics uh, in my undergraduate. You learned to think in the process of going this deep into academic content, into understanding deep arguments, analyzing things, you've developed a transferable skills, maybe not leadership management, but some of the other things mm-hmm. you talked about, that's implicit or intrinsic in that journey of going, but you have to go deep into content to unlock those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the, the way you described there's a slight, isn't there a slight risk that universities are just like job factory or job training factories, which are, they're not set up to do. How do you reconcile those things? I certainly don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'm not saying that, you know, none of what you get in university is, is valuable. I think often there's a misunderstanding of like the inputs and the outputs in a way. So I don't don't know if this was the case with you at Cambridge, but for me, uh, and I went to a top liberal arts university in the US and, you know, I would do all of this critical thinking, but then I would write a 20 page paper that would live on my desktop and be printed out and handed to an instructor. Now, I don't know if that's still the way things are done, but I assume it, it, it hasn't changed too much. And that's, that's where I have a problem with it, right? So what if, what if I did all that research, but then I wrote a series of blog posts that were available to the public and were, were sharing that knowledge, but was also teaching me how to communicate for an audience that is not an uh, academic professor. I'm not wasting time on like how to cite things, but I'm actually learning how to communicate to a larger audience, right? What if I'm making, instead of writing a 20-page paper, I make a documentary or a video? Uh, about it. And I know universities are starting to do this, but I think that's where we can separate the, the inputs in terms of the work we do to understand the, the, the thinking and all of the learning with making the outputs more practical, more usable. Things that my employer, you know, who, who wants me to have taken this macroeconomics class isn't going to read my macroeconomics paper. But perhaps they can read a blog post or a video that I've made about it. I think that's where there's, I think there's a lot of scope for creativity. 
I think employers would be happy to be involved in that conversation to say like, it's not meant to be a job factory, but at the same time, like if you want us to hire people coming out of your university, which is what's going to get them to eventually return money to you as an alumni and be someone you're proud of and, and so on. Well, let's talk a little bit more about how they can do things that are useful for me as well in this, right? And again, this is different from the purely research function of universities, but I don't think most people go to universities to become researchers either. Really interesting question as well. So I'm sort of playing that out. So, so we can reinvent that higher education piece, allow that kind of practical element, make it real. So I was talking to the founder of an amazing school in London called the London Disciplinary School, university, sorry. And what they do is they try to actually collapse subjects altogether. They try and look at yeah. world problems, you know, really difficult problems, saying, how do you work in a way that's really across disciplines? Do you think universities understand what you said about this idea of these transferable skills? There's four areas you mentioned. Is that sort of understood but hidden? Is it not understood or disagreed with? Where, where, where is higher education today, do you think? I think there's, they're probably across the spectrum, right? There's, there's places where it's disagreed with, but I think that there's a lot of places where it's understood and there's a lot of sympathy for it as well. And universities know that. And so I think universities at most like, you know, presidents or senior level people at universities, they know they have a problem. They know that what they're doing is for a previous era. I know the U.S. better, but I know that there's crises across humanities departments because students are demanding, like, how is this going to help me get a job? And professors are tearing their hair out. I think the the solution for them is to embrace that, you know, and how do I make my, you know, 18th century literature class something that's actually useful for my my students for the future and not just learning for its own sake. And I, I think that a lot of them get it, you know. I think about a decade ago or seven or eight years ago, Harvard Business School created a field studies portion of the MBA. So they were even admitting that the MBA isn't practical enough at Harvard. I know that law degrees are thinking about this, business school degrees are thinking about this. How do we make what we're offering more practical, more useful, more usable by our students when they graduate? And so if you look at these types of programs, those are all a reaction to the demand from students to say, like, we need something that we can use out there in the real world. So I think they get it. I think on the other hand, the incentive structures and what academia is set up to be resist this, right? So for 300 years, professors are graded on how good their research is, not necessarily how good an instructor they are or how many jobs their students get. And so that's where the challenge is. I think you've got to like realign the incentives in higher education in order to move uh, in this direction. One of the really interesting but scary things is just how the pressure on academics to be more academic, you know, get more Mm -hmm. citations, it's just growing and growing. It's not going the other way. It's, this is going to be a real battle to fight, I think, in the higher, higher ed wars. We often laugh in the UK because we have Greek or classics, you know, graduates in investment, mm-hmm. right? And we have, you know, politics students running, you know, biotech firms and so on. And people think it's crazy. But I love the idea you can study anything and love learning about something, but it can be transferable. But I think what I heard you say gives me gives hope, right? You can study classics or English or but do whatever you want. So that's, there's a nice mm-hmm. optimism in that, that, you know, it, it's not like the, you know, the French system where you, you do, you know, you study accountancy and you do that, you do that for 50 years. I'd love to leave the, the gates of, of colleges and universities for a few minutes and go into the, the real world now. Obviously you went into a, a social impact career. How would those, you know, people are working in a, in a company or a law firm or any of the listeners of this podcast, what, what can they glean from what you learned about finding purpose at work? It's a really good question. You know, I think everyone's journey around this is different. 
right? As you heard from me, it was 9-11 and always being a minority. So I have kind of this outsider minority view on things. And those are some of the, the things that contribute to my own sense of purpose. My co-founder, she grew up in a very different family for her. She grew up with words like democracy and human rights as part of the like dinner table conversation. And so for her, there was never a question that she was going to work in, in social impact, right? And so I think everyone comes to this through their own journeys, right? And I think that there are therefore then a set of different tools or frameworks that can help you to understand where your own sense of purpose might come from. So at Amani Institute, we teach how to use tools and frameworks like understanding your formative moments. What are your core values? What are your strengths? What do you really bring to the table? What makes you burn for justice? You know, what gets you angry? What gets you hopeful? What's your vision for change? Like, and, and each of these can be broken down into really concrete tools that people can keep coming back to. Having said all that, I'll also add that it takes work, right? You typically don't like find your passion like it's like hiding in the next room and you go and find it. I think you uncover it along the way. You uncover it by, by doing things, you know, and I'd love to hear your story of how you went from like Booz Allen consultant to becoming an education innovator. I imagine there was a process of like discovery there or an uncovering, hey, this is what I actually care about right now. These things are cyclical. They take time. And one piece of what you might do leads to to the next as well, right? And now you're really interested in, in intrinsic motivation, but that wasn't probably what you came into STIR with. So you uncover things, you uncover it along the way. So I like that as a way of, again, taking the pressure off this thing about go find your passion, young man or young woman, like to say like, no, go do what you're doing and it will come, but you need to, you need to be conscious of it. Like, and, and there are a bunch of different tools and frameworks you can apply towards you know, building that greater consciousness. And what, I, what I really liked about the Russian is the idea that it's almost like a detective story, right? Where you're trying to sort of get closer and closer to the plot as you get through it and figure out the, the twists and the turns. And you have those, those defining moments, as you said, I think there's a Harvard Business School professor written about the role of defining moments. The tools are definitely helpful, but I think also probably, as, as you said, the chance for reflection. And it sounded like you were very reflective as a young undergraduate, even think about this part, remains so, of course, through your, your journey as well. How do we create space? Again, a bit like the undergraduate question. There's so much pressure, I guess, as people get older, they have families or with a partner, financial commitments. Life can be a treadmill. How do you create the reflective space in a, in a career or in a, in a job? There's an expression that the only way to do it is to do it. It's very easy to find ways of doing that reflection, right? Whether it's meditation, whether it's gratitude journaling, whether it's having mentors that you can speak to, whether it's taking a formal course, right? Creating that space. Everyone needs to figure out how to create that space for themselves. And it could be something like at the end of the week, you know, on a Friday afternoon, taking the time to reflect and saying, what did I learn? Where was I right? Where was I wrong this week? But again, there's like so many different tools that anyone can use. The hard part is actually doing it, finding the time with all of these responsibilities and actually setting aside time to do it. So I think the range of options there is, is really vast. What I think is, is harder sometimes is the commitment to say like, I want to figure it out. I want to spend time every week thinking about what I learned that week uh, and where I want to take those learnings into the coming week. That's the hard part. Like that's the catch, right? There's no thing where you can take this pill and just suddenly have done all this reflection. You have to do it and you have to craft the time to do that. And people do that all over the world. People are making the time to do that. And they have their own 
systems for it, like whether it's a journal or an Excel sheet or re-looking at goals. I think you can create whatever system works for you. And it's fairly easy to find the range of systems out there. What's harder is actually just doing it. What I loved about that is the idea that that there's a strong parallel with the kind of college, university, higher ed stuff, right? Because again, it's about how do you find the space to think and and do that and use what you're doing in a different way. And I'm just curious in terms of where you're going now. You've had an amazing career and become a real uh, player in how to rethink higher ed. Where are you thinking now in terms of your purpose? And What's really important when you talk about these journeys in, in your career is that you reach a point, you know, at the end of one cycle where you're a different person uh, than you were at the beginning. It's a little bit what I was saying, where you might be now at the end of a decade or whatever at Stir Education. And it's important to reflect on who are you now and like everything you've done so far, where are you going to take that, right? So when I started Amani Institute after a decade working to support social entrepreneurs around the world, I took everything I'd learned about social entrepreneurship into the building of Amani Institute. And today I think I've learned so much about education, about leadership development. I am a different person than I was 10 years ago. Where that is, I don't know. And I'm comfortable not knowing because what I need now more than anything is that's a a sabbatical, right? As one of my mentors said, you know, even God rested on the seventh day, right? So you can take that time uh, to do that. So what I want to do is take some time to do that and, and then come back to the question of where am I going? I've got little fragments of ideas you know obviously climate change is is one huge challenge of today polarization and the challenge to democracy that we're seeing all around the world but without any clear alternative coming up after that that's another big challenge today those are some of the really big things i'm interested in understanding a bit better what that becomes as a as a potential career move next, I don't yet know, but I'm comfortable to to not know at the moment, and I know it'll come. What, what I love about this idea of where are you now, and it's this idea of life as a set of chapters, right? That we're kind of growing and evolving, and each time you have a chance to reshape the next chapter. And I've talked to Madonna that I think reinvented ourselves more than eleven times, found ways to keep being relevant and different. I think we can learn about that reinvention piece. That, as you said, it's not about sort of discarding what you've done already it's taking them and channeling it when you ask me i mean my my journey has been very much about i was doing something very specific in education I, I didn't think it was going to be about motivation at all it was really about more getting teachers to change their practice then i kind of stumbled across this idea of intrinsic motivation by accident you know that became the core now that's my biggest passion i want to devote my next stage of life maybe next decade to to really think about them help other organizations or mm-hmm. and a year ago that would not have been necessarily the the plan as well having that freedom to to have the space and, and and have the time as well and maybe just as a kind of last thought we probably had a bit of a maybe a financial cushion we've had good undergraduate degrees what if someone said this is a thing for people who've had to do the kind of fancy backgrounds and a bit of a bit of a cushion in life let's be honest but yeah surely this is not for everyone how do you how would you respond to that I would respond in a couple of ways. So I would say, firstly, that when you hear someone say that, that is almost like, where is that coming from? I know the sentiment you're talking about, but it it sounds defensive, right? It sounds like there's something that's not working for them and they're kind of lashing out a little bit with that because there's so much data showing that that isn't necessarily true, right? Like so much of the change that we've seen in the world has been driven by people who have suffered. Like they've suffered from the problems that they are now addressing right? And if you look at, you know, 
uh, the field of social entrepreneurship say, there are many social entrepreneurs who come from privileged backgrounds, but there are also social entrepreneurs who went through the challenges that they are now dedicating their lives to addressing. So it's not the case that this is only for pampered, you know, elites um, uh, and so on. But on the other hand, what I would say to that person also is, if the pampered elite does not do it, like, then who will? So, like, why don't we get every single, like, you know, pampered elite with a financial cushion to spend their lives towards this? If we had every one of the the, the 1% or the 10%, you know, dedicate their lives towards this, how much more will the world be a better place as well? So. I'm also quite comfortable to say that, you know, with the the power and the privilege that this brings you also comes responsibility of Spider-Man's speech, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Well, take that responsibility. And and if even if we sp- get, just get more and more of the privileged people to start to take action, that already moves the needle significantly. And just one comment uh, on your earlier, what you earlier said about, you know, like failure as well. For me, the great, the great failure story is in some ways Al Gore. So like Al Gore lost the 2000 election, shouldn't have lost it perhaps, and huge consequences to the world because of that loss. And he lost in a very public way. Six years later, in the same year, he won the Peace Nobel Peace Prize and an Oscar. You know, so like talk about bouncing back, right? Talk about like recovering from failure. And I think that again, like for me, that's always a story that no matter how badly you fail and whatever wrong decision you might make, you can come back uh, and, and build something very meaningful after that. So again, like there's no pressure. You can liberate yourself from the pressure by, by feeling like that you can always come back from this. It made me think of the Shakespeare kind of, if not you, who type, type story, right? Those of us who have that advantage and can do it, we need to role model and, and try that as well, of course. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, just maybe a last thread to talk about today is around money and the role of money in our lives and how we make decisions. And you know, what do you think the role of money should be when we think about our careers and, uh, and broader purpose? My belief on this is that obviously, like, Money is very important to people in different ways, depending on their socioeconomic backgrounds. And I don't think there's any prescriptive piece there that's going to work for everybody. Money is really important up to a point, right? I know you're obviously looking at Daniel Pink's work in motivation, since you talk about mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And he's talked famously about the studies showing that like, you need to pay people enough to take money off the table. But then after that, there's a diminishing return on money. So if you know that, if you can internalize the fact that there is a point at which more money actually doesn't bring you more happiness, then that gives you actually the opportunity to think about money in different ways. The way that I have started to think about money was how can you use money as a tool for self-knowledge, right? What is like your approach to money teaching you about yourself, right? Whether it's like you want to make a lot of it, whether you don't care about it, whether you're a great saver, whether you're a terrible saver, these are all things that can actually um, help you understand who you are as a person, what's important to you. You know, we could go much deeper into this, of course, but I think that's in some ways like the role of money in life should be secondary. It should be secondary to the fulfillment you want to, to have with that. And how can money aid that fulfillment without being the the number one driver. I think money can provide freedom, which is really valuable, but up to a point. Beyond that, it doesn't give you any more freedom. You know, it it can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you freedom from suffering. And it's understanding at each step uh, of this, what is important to you as a human? Where do you want to go uh, with this and what the limits of money are? 
I would definitely chime in like that that money is a a way of buying autonomy, buying a freedom, you know, in a way that it gives you the chance to live the life you really want to lead. I think when, when I've seen things go wrong is when people chase money directly rather than as the outcome of just doing good work and fulfilling work, or when they often, and this is particularly into things like financial services and so on, where uh, money is used as a currency of self-worth, right? And people basically use um, money as a proxy of how good they are, how much they're worth in particular, and not just in that. In a career sense, but also in life generally. That's where I think readings go very badly wrong mm-hmm. as well. I think it's an enabler, as you said. It's a hygiene factor. It's a motivation thinking. Uh, it's a way of, of making sure we can live the lives you want to lead, but it's not more than that. It's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really wish you the best, Russian for, for your next adventures. It sounds fascinating. I'm sure you'll go on to go another huge contribution to the world and, you know, as you come out of the sabbatical. Anything that you wanted to stress at the end of this podcast today? I feel like maybe the one thing we haven't covered... And that's even maybe even hard to cover is uh, 2020 itself, right? And the pandemic and how that's going to change things going forward. The thing that I've started to think about more and more for people who want to help out, who want to do something, is to realize that change takes time and to be patient with it. Someone asked me, a former classmate of mine had a very scary brush with COVID and and nearly died. And he works in the uh, private sector, makes a lot of money. That made him really think about how does he want to give back to society. And the thing that I I found myself saying to him, and I hadn't thought about this previously either, was if you want to support an organization, probably the best thing you can do is to actually find one organization and stay with them through the long haul, right? Like uh, if you're giving money, like keep giving money so they can count on your money. If you're going to give time, if you're volunteering, don't volunteer for six months, like volunteer for five years and, and, and give them that kind of commitment as well. And that would be a really, I think, powerful way for anyone to figure out how they can contribute uh, to a world in in crisis today is to is to find one thing that they care about you know and 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 by care about i mean it could be an issue that that they burn for it could be a geographical location that matters to them like their neighborhood or their city and give to whatever time you have whether it's a few hours a week or whether it's your full career give that over the long term like give that over a period of three to five years because that's what we're going to need in order to come through this how do you find one thing and commit to that over you know, over a period of years. That's just one thought that I've been playing with in my mind since this conversation with this friend of mine. Such a really great discussion, Roshan. Thank you for kind of going along with it. I think there was a really important thread about this idea of the long-term being important for higher education, how we think about our, our time in the education system, particularly in universities or colleges, in the world of work, taking that long-term perspective. And I think that idea of how you make a difference to the world, you know, you may be already, as you've done, devoted 20 years of your life to the social impact in a very direct sense. But if you don't, there are many ways to contribute and, and that will hopefully also give you a chance to develop, to, to learn new things and, and feel, feel you really, you know, that sense of purpose quite deeply. Yeah. And I think across that, I, those, all those three areas of the long term, I think this sense of, of reinvention, the idea of chapters in a, in a book, I was, we can rewrite these chapters, learn from the previous chapter, but, but kind of carve the next one. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Sharat. This has been really wonderful. Thank you, for yeah. Michaela, as well, for all your support. No, thanks, Richard. Real pleasure. Thanks for everything. I think it'll really inspire many, many people listen today as well.